0: In the brand new book, Dear Bi Men, author, peer counselor, and creator of the hashtag BisexualMenSpeak, J.R. Youssef offers an unapologetic guide for readers who are black, mask, and bi. The book features cutting social analysis, personal stories, and reclaims bi plus visibility in a culture of erasure. It also offers practical feedback on how to unlearn internalized biphobia and homophobia, fight back against erasure and stigma. Navigate sex, dating, partnerships, marriage, friendship, and much more. It's available now wherever books are sold. North Atlantic Books is offering listeners 25% off plus free shipping. Purchase Dear By Men at www.northatlanticbooks.com and use code CURIOUS25 at checkout for 25% off and free shipping. U.S. mailing address required. Hey. Hi, Curious People. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And welcome back to Getting Curious. I don't know if you watch Golden Girls or not. I think, in my opinion, that Golden Girls is like required viewing. So one thing that the Golden Girls would do that we loved is they would do these like, basically, the Golden Girls would just come into the kitchen table and then they would do cute little inter... Like, they'd be like, remember that time, Rose, when you did blah, 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 but it was from like a past episode? And then they would go back to that episode to play the clip. And then they'd come back to the kitchen and the Golden Girls would be like, ah, that was so funny. That's basically what we want to do with our year-end episodes. So that's why we're calling this our year-end golden girls episode. We are gonna give you some segments from some of our favorite conversations from this year and years past to just give you like a gorgeous little like sampler platter of getting curious. Um, maybe you're driving, maybe your family has just ravenously pissed you off for like, you know, got like a week fucking straight um it's almost new year's this is our last episode of getting curious of the year before next year which will bring you back to all new episodes and obviously this is an all new entry because or intro because you never heard this before um and just also health update hopefully you know my butt is just recovering great um you know i'm feeling better i'm getting i'm getting there we're getting healthy we love we love health you know what? also we love great apes So enjoy this segment from Dr. Laura Simone Lewis. This was titled, How Do Great Apes Go Wild? Um, But Dr. Laura Simone Lewis, she works with chimpanzees and bonobos living in sanctuaries. She has a PhD in human evolutionary biology from Harvard. And she is a UC President's Postdoctoral Fellow at UC Berkeley. I learned so much about this episode. Listen to Laura. We love her so much. And enjoy this clip from How Do Great Apes Go Wild?
1: Okay, let me tell you about the technology that I love the most, one that I use in my research a lot. This is called eye-tracking technology. Again, it's not harmful at all, not invasive, but eye-tracking technology is this really cool technology that uses an infrared camera in order to tell where a chimpanzee or bonobo is looking at any given time. So we can show them pictures and videos on a screen And the eye tracker sits directly below the screen and can tell where the chimpanzees or bonobos are looking on the screen at any given time. So in this way, in my research, I show chimpanzees and bonobos pictures of their group mates, for example, or videos of some funny scene. And with the eye tracker, we can tell where they're looking, whether they're paying attention more to some individuals over others, whether they're paying attention more to some parts of the scene over others at any given time during the presentation. It's
0: oh, fun.
1: It's an amazing technology. It's really cool. And it's taught us a lot about who they're paying attention to and how they think. So in one of my first projects, I showed them, for example, a picture of one of their groupmates next to a picture of a complete stranger. And we found that chimpanzees and bonobos paid more attention to their dominant groupmates. Oh. For example, yeah, yeah. And Maybe we can touch upon this, this aspect actually. A difference between chimpanzees and bonobos that I also found in my work is that chimpanzees were paying a lot more attention to their male group mates. While bonobos were paying a lot more attention to their female groupmates. And that's because they have different dominance structures. So chimpanzees are male dominant, which means males make the big group decisions. They are kind of the highest in the dominance hierarchy, and then the females sit below them in the dominance hierarchy. Whereas bonobos are what we call female dominant. So the bonobo females sit at the highest levels of the dominance hierarchy. Uh, They form coalitions with each other. They make the big group decisions. And also, because they're dominant, they also curtail male violence if the males are being too aggressive. And so we can tell that not only, right, do they have these different dominant structures, chimpanzees are male dominant, bonobos are more female dominant, but that actually also shapes the way they're paying attention to their group mates, where chimpanzees are paying more attention to their male dominant group mates, and bonobos are paying more attention to their female dominant group mates.
0: I'm so obsessed. So what have you gotten to learn about the other ways that Chips and Bonobos express themselves? Like, what are some of, like, the other, like, common gestures and behaviors that happen?
1: Yes, I love thinking about how chimpanzees and bonobos express themselves because they express themselves in a huge variety of ways. So they use vocalizations to express themselves. They have a huge number of different vocalizations that they make. Each individual has their own unique voice, basically, right? Their own unique vocal signature. Communities also have very specific vocal signatures. So they'll have very specific vocalizations for a certain type of food, for example. And then they also have. Have lots of different gestures that they use. And I want to highlight some new research that has just come out. So this is not my own research. This is new research that has come out by some of my wonderful colleagues named Kirsty Graham and Kat Hobader at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Mm. So they have found that chimpanzees and bonobos share over 90% of the same gestures. So chimps and bonobos have a lot of similar gestures. There are things like the babies will say, like, carry me, or the mothers will say, get On my back, or follow me, or please groom me. So, one that I love is kind of self scratching will indicate please groom me to others, for example. They'll do other things to indicate they want to be friendly with one another. They'll kind of hold out their hand, as we would also with their palm up, to indicate that they'd like some food. So, they have tons of different gestures that they use that are very similar. And I think the coolest thing, just this just came out a couple months ago, kirsty and Kat, Katherine Hobader, found that we as humans can understand their gestures. So they created this amazing great ape dictionary quiz that humans can take. You could take this. I could send you the link. It's amazing. Where you could take a quiz where you watch videos of chimps and bonobos in the wild making gestures, and then you guess what that gesture means turns out we're really good at understanding their gestures. Uh, So it seems like, yeah, it seems like we have this ability to understand their gestures that they may even use some gestures that are similar to the gestures that we use in humans. These gestures may be conserved across millions of years.
0: Okay, I'm obsessed with that. Based on like what the experiments are, like, is there ever like really popular experiments or like ones that are like... Oh, like none of them really like it. Like what really motivates them to want to do stuff or like makes them not really
1: interested in anymore? There are some experiments that are a ton of fun and they love and other experiments that are maybe less exciting to them. I can talk about in my own research, they're not as interested in just looking at kind of static pictures. They're much more interested in looking at videos. And then there's also in my own research, one thing that was a lot of fun is For this eye tracking research, right, where we're actually tracking their eyes and where they're looking on the screen, we have to have their heads super still. So their heads have to be really still and only their eyes basically are moving. In order to keep their heads still, we give them a little straw with a little bit of diluted juice. So they're drinking this diluted juice and they're watching these videos. Turns out they have very strong preferences about the juice flavors. (laughs) Um, So for example, I found that chimps love pear juice, apple juice, grapefruit juice for some reason. They're obsessed with grapefruit juice. And I quickly found out they hate tomato juice and carrot juice. In fact, they actually spit out the tomato juice at me when I tried experimenting well, with sense. some new tomato juice. I, it didn't, really, sense. I didn't really, I didn't really like it until them. I
0: was like very recently. Did I start to like a Bloody Mary? But it's like not
1: right.
0: Yeah, that's like not just straight tomato juice is like nasty. So I don't you know. exactly. What about grape exactly. juice? I really love a grape juice. Do they like a grape juice?
1: They love grape juice. The Grape they juice is, grape is the most juice. delicious.
0: Like, if you gave me some grape yes, juice and, like, so just, like, let me see videos of people fighting and food. yeah, maybe a little bit yes, of sexy exactly. stuff. Like, is it chimpanzee or bonobo? Like, I would probably just, like, and never leave. But then you would see that, like, exactly. I was most likely into the sex one, probably. Which is, like, <laughs> yeah, annoying. I, mean, I know. You know?
1: I know. No, no, no. It's okay. It's something that I'm thinking about doing with them, too, because I think it would be really interesting. But then, like,
0: but then I feel like I don't want you to, like, watch them, like, watching the sexy times, because then they might get embarrassed. Like, so just, like, don't, like, like, let them watch it privately. Like, don't, like, you don't want to watch them diddle. Or do you have (laughs) to? Do you have to, like, like, do you guys have to, like? No. Or do they don't give a (laughs) fuck, because are they just fucking all the time in front of people? Like, they don't even care?
1: Okay. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. They have sex in front of others all the time and they don't care. And this is something that I think about. Maybe we'll just pose this question to the listeners. It's something I think about all the time. Do chimps and bonobos get embarrassed? Yeah. In fact. Do any other animal species get embarrassed? Right now, a lot of people think that embarrassment is human unique. This is just drop for the listeners to think about. Do you think any other animal species get embarrassed? I hear all the time that people's dogs get embarrassed. My dog totally gets embarrassed.
0: Because when when we shame Elton for eating cat shit again, he's like, I can't help it. (laughs) Like, I feel like he's totally like... He feels bad and he like wishes that he didn't get caught eating so much cat shit. But at the same time, he's like, <laughs> do we notice more gay stuff in bonobos or chimps?
1: Bonobo females also form coalitions and friendships with each other. And to maintain these friendships with each other, they groom each other. They do a lot of grooming with each other, but they also have a lot of socio sexual behavior.
0: Give it to me.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So bonobo females, in order to form and maintain strong social bonds, will have sex with each other. We call this sociosexual behavior because it's not for reproduction. Oh, yeah. It's in order to form strong social bonds with each other. Yes. And it's also to release tension. So if there's, for example, if it's feeding time and there's kind of high energy, they're very aroused, before they eat, they'll actually all have sex with each other. In order to kind of decrease social tensions, and then they'll, they'll have these resources. They'll be able to eat. But recently, a paper came out last year by a good friend of mine named Rechna Reddy, showing that chimpanzee males actually do have some sociosexual behavior as well. And the thought is that it's also to form and maintain strong social bonds with each other. So they also have same sex sociosexual behavior.
0: Are they sneaky about it? Like how when you told us last time, when they sneak off to like diddle, if there's like the other ones are in like right. the relationship, but then they sneak off to go right. diddle. Do they do everything right. like gay style or do they just do it right in front of everybody? The chimpanzees? I
1: don't think it's sneaky. I, I don't think it's sneaky. I don't think they need to, to hide it from others. So
0: they only do the sneaky stuff if it's a, uh, that's like the sneaky link.
1: Yes, that's right. The sneaky link. The sneaky link happens between lower ranking males right? And females, right? Because the dominant males, they get priority to have sex with the females. But the lower ranking males, the subordinate males, they don't get priority to have females. So they have to do a little sneaky link. Sneak copulation is what we call it. Yeah. Is that chimpanzees
0: and bonobos or just chimpanzees?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I think it more happens in chimpanzees, but I think it happens in both.
0: So there's socio-sexual relationships in both. I didn't mean to take such a... I wasn't even there yet, but no. my I'm such a okay. gay. I'm a nightmare. <laughs> okay.
1: I love it. No, I love it. Okay,
0: so what are their <laughs> memories like? Like, is there ever experiments around, like, remembering where something is? Or, like, do they have, like, a sense of humor...
1: Absolutely. Yes. I would love to talk about memory because that's something I specifically study. Studies with memories started with thinking about if they can remember where things are in their environment. And they're really good at remembering where things are in their environment. So across days and experiments, across days, they can remember where a food item is hidden. And then from the wild, we know that they remember where fruiting trees are located across months and sometimes even years. So across different seasons, they will go back specifically to to where they know the fruiting tree is at the time that they know it will fruit. So they have amazing, this is what we call ecological memory. So memory of their ecology, of their physical environment, where things are in the environment and at, at what time fruiting trees will actually be fruiting. I, on the other hand, study social memory so that we know they have this really amazing uh, ecological memory. And I started studying their social memory. So whether they remember other individuals and for how long. And this is a study that I did a few years ago with some exciting results where we showed them pictures of previous groupmates that had either died or left the group next to pictures of complete strangers. And we found that they were looking significantly longer at these images of their previous groupmates who had died or left the group up to a decade ago. So they have memory. What it seems like from these results is that they have memory for others that can last at least a decade, at least 10 years. We had some trials where a bonobo hadn't seen her sister in 27 years, and she was also looking a lot longer at the image of her sister that she hadn't seen in 27 years. So it could be the case, we couldn't actually analyze those trials, we didn't have enough data, but it could be the case that they actually have memory that lasts almost 30 years, a really long time. And that's similar to us as humans, we have memory for others that can last 30, 40 years, potentially up to 60 years, right? We have this really long-term memory for others. Turns out so do bonobos and chimpanzees.
0: <sighs> wow, wow. Yeah. Okay, right so now. like what about how would they like express like a sense of humor?
1: One of my favorite things about bonobos and chimpanzees is that they have the cutest giggles. They laugh. So when they're tickling and playing with each other, they have this laugh. Let me see if I can try to do it. It's like... (laughs) Kind of like that. It's so cute. So they'll tickle each other. They'll play with each other. They tease each other a lot. So they'll like pull on each other's fur from the back or poke each other's butt from the back. Especially the babies, especially the young juveniles. They are super playful and Kind of play a lot of tricks on each other, and bonobos even the adults are playful actually. So this is different in chimpanzees. The adults aren't as playful, but in bonobos, the, the even the adults are very playful with each other. Another uh, fun <laughs> activity that I love that they do in the wild is they'll play airplane with their babies. So they'll hold their babies up on their feet. They'll lay down on their backs and they'll bounce the babies on their feet like a little airplane, just as we do in humans. So they have all. these different ways that they play with each other, they can be very sneaky. Um, So there's research that shows that, for example, if they know where a food item is hidden and there's a dominant individual who's coming, they'll specifically look away from that food item and even move their body away from where the food item is hidden to kind of be sneaky around it. So they do have all these kind of very humorous, funny, sneaky ways of thinking about the environment that just shows us just how incredibly rich their psychology is. Is, right, that they have these really complex ways of thinking about their environment, thinking about others around them, kind of manipulating them, hiding things from them, teasing them, playing with them. Right, they have all these really complex behaviors that show us that they think in these really rich, sophisticated ways about their social environments.
0: <laughs> Laura Simone Lewis, that was amazing. Give it up for Laura Simone Lewis. They always say trust your gut, but one time, my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows, and that was fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support, and Ritual has your back. They made a 3-in-1 supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no. Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb. And then I realized that while I was away... My empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now it's time for our second segment, which is Dr. W. Jake Newsom. And Dr. Newsom is a historian in queer history. And he extensively studies the history of queer people in Nazi Germany and how queer people experienced Nazi Germany, like what happened to them. I learned so much in this episode it was incredibly eye opening dr w jake newsom is a phd he's an award winning scholar of german and american lgbtq plus history whose work educates global audiences Also too, just content uh, trigger warning, this episode references racist, anti-Semitic, and homophobic ideology and bodily harm. We really learned a lot on this episode. It's a dark past, and it's a past that we need to be clear on. So take a listen to Dr. W.J. Newsom's episode on Getting Curious titled, How Did Queer People Experience Nazi Germany? So let's go on a journey to the past. (laughs) It's 1920s. Mm -hmm. It's early 20th century. We are in Germany, honey. And word on the street was, in the 10s and 20s, like, wasn't it kind of fun to be gay? Like, weren't people fucking? And it was like kind of like a hot progressive, like, it was like the roaring 20s, honey. Like, we were just like, you know, getting fucked and topping and bottoming and versing and transing gender and like lesbians and like, we were just having fun. So before Nazi rule, how did people understand gender and sexuality is what I just said, right?
2: Yes. So Germany lost World War I. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the, the emperor has abdicated the throne and there is this new form of government. And what year is that again? That is in 1918. And for the very first time, a democracy is set up in Germany and it's called the Weimar Republic. And this is really important to even understanding gender and sexuality because now in a, in a democracy, German citizens felt that they had certain civil liberties and freedoms that they didn't have when they were living under an emperor. And part of those civil liberties were the ability to, you know, live one's life the way you wanted to, even if that went against kind of traditional gender norms, mostly in private. Uh, I, I will say that um, in Germany's largest cities like Berlin, the capital city, uh, really Berlin by the 1920s became like a gay capital of the world where folks from new york and paris and london were all flocking to berlin because the queer folks there in berlin had established a a space for themselves that i'm not going to call it like full acceptance but certainly an unprecedented level of tolerance that no one else in the world had had, had enjoyed at that point in time and so even in berlin there were a hundred bars that uh, catered either exclusively to or made it known that it was a safe space for queer people. There were organizations, political organizations, there were cafes, leisure activities, sports clubs, uh, and a really vibrant gay press. Whether you were into politics or arts and culture or sports, you could find a gay magazine or newspaper for you. And this just did not exist anywhere else? Because like
0: London, it's still very criminalized at this point. America's it's still very like the masquerade.
2: Is there any other places where there's like smaller versions of this? There are small kind of pockets in other urban centers throughout the Western nations. Um, But Berlin is on a scale that is unprecedented. And I will say that Berlin does not represent all of Germany. I, I mean, across the rest of Germany and in, in the rural areas in the smaller towns they're seeing this queer culture emerging in the capital and they're like oh let's try to keep it in the capital we don't want it spreading out here into into the country and so they're they're actually cracking down on queer places throughout the rest of Germany
0: what about like Munich and Cologne and like were those as big
2: then definitely there were queer scenes in those cities uh, but but on a smaller scale especially Hamburg at the time was known as a kind Hamburg. of like a uh, uh, a gay Mecca almost, um, second only to Berlin.
0: So bigger cities, pretty popping off, pretty fun. Little ones, not so much. Uh, yeah. What laws and policies in
2: the 20s protected the queer community or left them vulnerable? So I would say they had very few that actually protected them. Uh, and in fact, when Germany was united back in 1871 for the first time, they had a series of laws in their criminal code called Crimes Against Morality, um, and so these were laws that uh, banned sexual assault, uh, pornography, abortion, and and a lot of others. Um that even during the Weimar period, most of these stayed on the books. But in Berlin, the law enforcement have decided to essentially relax their enforcement of the law because they're saying as long as these things are are happening in private and as long as it's consensual, we're going to stop enforcing it as harshly. There was an infamous law called Paragraph 175. Yes. What's Um, the deal with this fucking thing? So it is is Germany's national anti-sodomy law.
0: Could straight people not have sex in the ass either?
2: Well... So, technically, it was written in a way that was not discriminatory, right? That it could apply to straight people, too. But if you look at the enforcement numbers, it was very rarely enforced. But, like, why are they so scared of anal? Because
0: it feels so good. Like, they are so crazy. It's so rude.
2: It actually began based on religion that this is a sin. By the time of the 1920s and especially by the time that the Nazis come to power, it is all based on reproduction and eugenic ideology that essentially anal sex does not lead to reproduction. And so something that is against that, that is essentially robbing the fatherland of good Aryan children is a, is a crime against the state.
0: So that's part of like, some of the importance of like taking old faulty laws off the books, like for legislators to do that work and like get these fucking laws. Cause there's, yeah. we're always hearing about laws that are like, you know, 900 year old, not literally, but just like these old <laughs> right. ass laws. So how do the Nazis conceive of gender and sexuality? I guess that from what I just heard you say, it's like anything that doesn't lead to children is an offense uh, to the fatherland. Those patriarchal fucks.
2: The most important thing to understand is the Nazis didn't believe that people were born Queer, born gay, right? They, they believed that homosexuality was a lifestyle choice. It was kind of a vice that anyone could choose. Um, and anyone could be tempted into. In fact, that's one reason they thought it was so dangerous is because that any of these kind of good straight men could be tempted into having sex with other men. They wanted to be able to contain what they saw as a plague of homosexuality.
0: So they're like reacting to their own internalized homophobia.
2: Essentially, because
0: they probably wanted to suck some ding too. And, and they're like, well, if I can't suck dick and I'm having to do all this straight stuff, then all you fuckers better do it too. Which is yeah. probably what these motherfuckers <laughs> and America are doing too.
2: <laughs> 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 having to eat all this furious they're just like yeah we've got to shut this down we've
0: got to shut it down (laughs) anyway um oh my god my professionalism only lasted for three minutes i'm so sorry i'm so sorry for freaking out you guys i don't think i've ever taken my book it just started
2: i had like a puke state of rage um so i will say that as you just pointed out like this is not an idea that is unique to the nazis especially i mean at this time it is widely understood that homosexuality is a lifestyle, right? The, the idea that people could be born somewhere on the queer spectrum was just, it was very new in Berlin. This guy named Magnus Hirschfeld was the first to argue that being queer was inborn and therefore you shouldn't be persecuted because of it. And what year Uh, is that? That is like late, um, Late eighteen hundreds into the early nineteen hundreds.
0: That's even a long ass fucking time ago. That we've
2: been having this specific of of arguments
0: around born or chosen, whatever, yeah. and the idea that it's new, cause like even that is that's over a hundred and twenty-something years of yes. this same conversation. So at this time, by the nineteen twenties, it and thirties, mm-hmm. cause when do the Nazis start to like because didn't he kind of come up
2: in the 20s and then he got in trouble, but then he like really came back? Then, So, you know, he, the Nazi party is this really small fringe party in the 1920s. People make fun of them. They're saying, oh, they're so far to the right. No one's going to ever pay attention to them. Don't take them seriously. But then they slowly gain followers and they gain followers. And you're right, Hitler does in the early 1920s try to overthrow one of the state governments and take it by force. He's thrown in jail. Essentially learns his lesson that in order for him to take power, for the Nazis to take power, they're going to, have to do it through the ballot box, which is ultimately what happens. They become the largest party in parliament um, in the early 1930s, I believe in 1932. And then he's appointed chancellor of Germany in January of 1933. And really by that point, you know, their their main kind of platform was anti-Semitism against Jews, but they had made their stance on, you know, uh, queer people and queer culture very clear from early on that, you know, they, they said things like, if left unchecked, homosexuality will lead to the downfall of the fatherland. Because, you know, as I already mentioned, they believed that it was robbing the next generation of the master race of, of good Aryan children. But also they believed that it was a gender inversion, essentially, that it turned, you know, otherwise good masculine men it turned them weak and effeminate. It was not great because men had all of the leadership roles. And so they, they didn't want their men to become weak. And at the same time, they also believed that, um, it turned women masculine, right? They, they said like, Oh yeah, all all lesbians are masculine and therefore they're not going to be nurturing and mothering to our good Aryan babies. Um, and so they really, they really felt that, um, Again, this kind of queer lifestyle was not only a moral affront, but was a, a very direct threat to the, the social order of the government and the racial reproduction of, of the master race.
0: And they also thought above all else that it was a choice, that yes. it was not something that you were born with. And did they have any like literature around like why they thought it was a choice? Did they just think that we were like whores who wanted to suck dick or something? Like why did they think that we chose it?
2: Because of a, essentially a weakness of constitution. So they still think that you're born with something. <laughs> That's where, like, if you start listening to actually what they're saying and they're writing, there is kind of a, a kernel of, like, biological determinism there because, the, you know, some people might be born with a weaker constitution and can't really, you know, uh, confront their, their desires to have sex with another man or another woman. But their solution to that was just like, well, we're going to fucking kill you. Because it's not about the individual.
0: It was about like service of the master race or whatever. So it wasn't about like your individual choices.
2: So here's the thing, like these details can be kind of down in the weeds, but it's important because it also defines how the Nazis treated different groups of people. So for example, because they believed that queer people didn't exist as kind of a separate group of people. And the fact that if the Nazi policies just were aimed at essentially conversion therapy of like really violent conversion therapy to get people to stop doing queer things and then reintegrate them back into society as good Germans, that was not the case for other groups of people like Jews, the Roma and Sinti, people with disabilities, Mm. because the Nazis believed that those people posed a really deep biological threat that could not be changed. Okay, I'm, I'm using Nazi ideology here, right? But you could not teach a Jew to quit being a Jew. Like It was in their blood and that is why they had to be physically murdered. So the policies for queer people, at least officially, were not genocide and we're not like the wholesale mm. murder of all queer people because again the nazis thought well, we'll just throw them in a concentration camp like really hardcore conversion therapy and then they'll be cured and we'll we'll bring them back into society what
0: if you couldn't stop doing it with other then would they kill you
2: then always death was like reserved as a last resort we have to remember there's always a difference between policy and reality because on the one hand they're saying like sure we can we can cure you we'll reintegrate you but their policies also led to the deaths of tens of thousands of queer people, you know, because they so-called wouldn't be cured or couldn't be cured.
0: So basically choice could be changed through beating, not going straight to death. But now I understand why people on Twitter are like, don't fucking compare this. Cause like, Mm -hmm. that's a really huge difference that like Mm -hmm. some people were allowed to be tortured, but you had like a bigger, like you had a way better chance of surviving. If you were like a non-Jew queer person, than Mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. So Basically, I just thought there was, like, the
2: inversion, but were um, they, like,
0: not as threatened by lesbians as gay men or something?
2: Yeah, and it essentially comes down to misogyny and sexism. Because in Germany, like most of the, the countries in the world at the time, uh, only men had access to positions of authority, like, in the economy and in politics and in the army. And so, therefore, like, queer men or men who did not fit into those norms, because they had access to that authority, they were seen as the main threat. And mm-hmm. so the Nazis, I mean, there are documents after documents of of Nazis sitting around talking about, do lesbians even exist? And if so, should we focus on, you know, including them in paragraph 175? Because actually, one of the things I didn't mention is that paragraph 175 only applied to men. Mm. Um, And Nazis believed essentially that um they didn't want to waste law enforcement resources on going after lesbians when they felt that men just pose more of a of a direct threat. Um they believed that essentially women (laughs) that that a woman's desire was so tied to a man that okay, even if women, you know, messed around with each other, that as long as a you know, as soon as a good man came around, (laughs) they would just like go back to go back to the man. Um, And then at the end of the day, and this is really chilling, um, and this comes back to the the thought about reproduction there is a a quote from a guy who ended up becoming the the minister of justice who said that at the end of the day, all women are prepared for sex. So essentially, they are talking about the idea that women, even if they are lesbians, can be impregnated by force if necessary to help create the next generation of the so-called master race. Wow. So what about trans and gender nonconforming people? So really, the Nazis did not view... Transgender or gender non-conforming identities as legitimate. A trans woman would be considered a a queer man, um, and in fact, they 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 lumped together all like gay men, bi men, and trans women as just under under the label homosexual. Their thoughts and their policies were defined by essentially what they termed, you know, what they considered the the biological sex assigned at birth, um, and they there was kind of no really gray zone. But what about intersex people? I, I personally don't know what the Nazis policies were on intersex people. I think that probably according to their, you know, eugenic ideology, they would have either been euthanized probably very early on or sent to an asylum, but would not have been allowed to be part of the general public.
0: So trans, but would trans and gender, because they were like lumped in the gay group or the homosexual group, did that just mean that they were given like hardcore conversion therapy?
2: Yeah. We know a lot of, um, the paragraph 175 convictions that, you know, we're finding in the archives. It's hard to, to ascertain, like, how many of those were gay men or bisexual men or were, you know, trans women who just, according to Nazi viewpoint, was just, just a gay man cross-dressing. There's still a lot of work to be done, you know, in the historical research to, to kind of flesh that out. There's some really great scholars working on it right now. Um, but it's it's hard to sometimes look for the identities that we recognize today because the Nazis kind of just collapsed them all into into homosexual. That
0: clip blows my mind, y'all. And if you want to learn more about uh, that episode, go back and, and take a listen. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. freedom without favor, and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them ever take their first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Having built a business or two myself, I know just how difficult the whole process is. But Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing to growing your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Yes! From LLC information to bookkeeping, invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC information plans using our link taylorbrands.com slash jvn. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash JVN. So start your business journey today with Taylor Brands. So now this episode comes from March 12th, 2019. We're really going into the vault for this one. This episode, is with Senator Tammy Baldwin, who is the junior senator from Wisconsin. She's the first out gay federal senator ever. Um, she is the woman that we wish Kristen Cinema was, but alas, not. Uh, but Senator Tammy Baldwin is an incredible negotiator, deal maker, um, a fearless, relentless advocate for her constituents in Wisconsin. She's someone who I look up to and respect so much. So that's why we wanted to to release a a moment from her episode because it's really uplifting and it really shows um, that resilience and queer joy can take us very far, but it also really focuses on the fact that this is like a big picture situation. Um, and so we really wanted to go back into the vault. We wanted to highlight, um, Senator Baldwin's uh, conversation and also she's up for election in November of this year. So we've also learned on getting curious that, you know, campaigns need your help early. It's better early than late. So if you want to donate to Senator Baldwin's campaign, Get into it. Uh, we love her so much. So this conversation um, with Senator Tammy Baldwin, she's a junior U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, and as I said earlier, she's the first openly gay woman to be elected to Congress. This conversation covers her journey in politics, and when she first became interest, interested in being a politician, um, she she talks a lot in this episode about her experience in the Senate, what it's like to be in the Senate. It's also really interesting that this episode happened before um, January 6 2021, and it just, it really feels like, So much has changed. And at the same time, uh, a lot is the same. It's just a really fascinating moment in history to me. So we wanted to share this conversation with you. Uh, So take a listen to Senator Tammy Baldwin with How Do We Find Our Voice.
3: So I was first elected to local office. Local office. So important. Yes. The Dane County Board of Supervisors in 1986. When I was twenty four years old. You can oh do the my math. God.
0: If you want. God. Good for you. So you've been like into like legislation and like has been like interesting to you since like you were in like grown like how did so, you get into it?
3: So the first okay, now I'm gonna tell a childhood story, but the, the the first spark I ever remember of like, wow, would this ever be fulfilling was middle school student council. <laughs> And you, I know, and I got elected to the student council and we were working all these projects and I could tell that I wasn't even then too young to make a positive difference. And I'm not going to go into all the stories because we don't have all day. But, um, and then from the standpoint of why I, you know, why I got in, um, sort of having had that experience of, you know, I could help shape positive change, Um, really, it was the issue of health care that got me into political office. Um, When I was a kid, I had a serious childhood illness. Um, I was being raised by my maternal grandparents. And they had a family insurance plan, but somehow or other, it, you know, didn't cover grandchildren because I wasn't a legal dependent. So I was hospitalized for three months. And then there was all this, you know, as I understand it, of course they didn't burden me with this. They wouldn't, you know, I was trying to get better. But I learned later on that there was a lot of controversy between the hospital and the insurance company and my grandparents. Um, and then they said, let's fix this. Let's get our granddaughter health insurance. And I was a child with a pre-existing health condition then and so I had most of my youth without health sh- health insurance until I was an adult and could get it through either work or school. And I thought that was wrong and I said I want to be a part of changing this and then I had my you know middle school student council experience and I was like I'm going to I'm going to run and try to do something. So
0: your first moment was Board of Supervisors, which in like 15 seconds or less, because I'm so fascinated right now. And I have a billion questions. But this isn't for what do Board of Supervisors do? I was always curious about that.
3: So in Wisconsin, they run the county government. Um, There's a county elected county executive who's like, you know, if it were a state, that would be the governor. Um, But elected county executive who does the executive branch stuff. And then in Wisconsin, we have these huge county boards. So it was like a mini legislature. So I kind of you know, at that point, started, um, learning a lot about these, um, you know, the issues. And so it has a public health department. It, it helps people with, um, who have, uh, mental illness or addiction. Um, it, it, uh, in the human services, child protective services. Um, so there's a lot of health and social services, uh, responsibilities. Um, zoning outside of cities. Um,
0: does that have an impact or like, does that have anything to do with like, uh, like districting? Like, do, or is that more like the state legislature? Cause they do that like in the census and
3: stuff. Um, no, it, it when you redraw the county board districts, the county board does it. Yeah. uh uh-huh. And then, but it has to sort of, you know, also fit with the other puzzle pieces. And boy, do we know something about, um, Gerrymandering in Wisconsin, it's a horrible situation right now.
0: And there's a lot of states that I think are really messed up on some gerrymandering. But um, the other thing that's interesting about local government and state legislatures, I'm really into state legislature because, like, honey, the Republicans just, like, really, like you know, not to blanket statement people, but they really just like sorted out that Republican legislature like in that 2010 midterm and my word, I learned a lot, of, a, lot a lot, about it last year when I interviewed this amazing uh, uh, organization called Sister District and um, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating but so many of our legislatures that come up to be senators or presidents like were originally like either at state, Ledge or county or had like some more local like elected yes. office and I think that's great because it gives you an idea of like, so you you went county or you went that?
3: County, state assembly, house of representatives, senate. So
0: you did all that. I did. So much experience. <laughs> have you, I should have researched this before. Have you ever lost?
3: Um, High school, college elections, but not since I ran for the county board.
0: Slow clap girl at least you got those losses out of your way when they didn't really matter queen but did that like hurt your little baby heart then like did or did it teach you some lessons like what did you learn about like dealing with loss from those experiences
3: if at first you don't succeed, try, try again.
0: Oh, that is gorgeous sage advice. Now here's my next question, which is also, but this this is good. It's fine. I feel like, uh like I need to like make sure that you know that every question I'm about to ask is like gonna be okay. Like before I ask it, because I'm like, oh my god, like don't freak out, it's gonna be fine. But uh, I just have questions. So, do you notice being in the legislature now, like with Trump as president, because of all of the like extra? Just noise that he makes. Like, is it making it harder? Like, was it harder versus like uh an Obama? And I guess during Bush, were you in the? Were you in state assembly by then or Congress? Congress. So you had. I experience came into with-
3: the House in the last two years of the Bush C- Clinton administration. Oh shit, you did. Yeah. Work. So ninety nine and two thousand. Wow, it's time to search. be
0: alive. You yes. did that in '99, pre Y2K. You have been in the legislature. I'm sorry, in you the interrupt Congress. You. Yes, kidding. yes. Wow, wow. Wait, were you there during the impeachment? Then, or um, it was just after that? Because that was just after that. Kenneth Starr. He was talk about a witch hunt. I mean, I mean, was he a, that bill was a little bit of a dirty birdie, but he did not, you know, do fake deals with North Korea and embezzle money from. God knows where. Ah. And also, you know what else I've realized? This is really bad of me. I do this with, like, men that I'm attracted to and, like, lady politicians who I like their style. Um, I believe more if I'm... If they, if they... Ah! Which leads me back to Bernie. I should actually really get that out of my head. Because sometimes people can look all sorts of ways, but you gotta, like, listen to what they're saying. Wow, Jonathan. I feel like I just therapeuticized myself right here right now but anyway back to you the extra noise of donald trump is it making it harder to legislate and like get work done
3: so let me start by saying that if you look at the media coverage of politics you always see it kind of go towards um you know if if it um if it bleeds, it leads. Isn't that the old saying in journalism? You know that that and so there's I never a gravitation, heard that. really.
0: Oh, so if it's messier, like it's
3: chaotic, whatever. So, and if you want to sell ads on television, uh, you want things that are going to captivate the viewer. So, it is really not unusual to see news coverage of the controversy. And very little coverage of um, bipartisan, spirited cooperation and negotiation. And so a lot of people think that it doesn't even happen anymore, which isn't true. But I do think it happens less so. And so to answer your – to get to finally answer your question um, – yeah, there's nonstop coverage of the Mueller investigation and Michael Cohen's testimony and Paul Manafort's sentencing and you know so forth and so on. And in the meantime, we are spending a lot of time also working on things to make the country stronger, uh, to make people's lives better. To Further the arc towards justice and fairness and equality, and making, you know, respecting the dignity of hard work and hard workers and, you know, health care, trying to make sure that everyone has access that they can afford.
0: Well, I was really relieved to see the Senate like defend the Affordable Care Act, you know, prior to midterms I thought that was really we saw some republicans with backbone like step up to the plate and do what was right and I hope that that happens when you know the vote for the into the national emergency uh, declaration happens yep um I think that was a really good segue though into the equality act which is we I learned a, l- a little bit about that with Nancy Pelosi last year yes. um basically the equality act like protects by you tell us what it is
3: the equality act recognizes the fact that more than half of the states in the United States do not have legal protections for people uh, preventing or giving them the tools to fight back against discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. And so it would be the first sweeping federal protection against discrimination in essential parts of our lives. You know, having a roof over our head, so housing, being able to work and uh, not be discriminated against or fired because of sexual orientation or gender identity so we can, um, you know, protect our families. Uh, it would uh, protect uh, the LGBT community in many other areas, public accommodation. So if you come in, to a place that holds itself out for commerce, you'll be served and you won't be turned away because of uh, sexual orientation or gender identity.
0: It's a sweeping federal law that would protect people despite sexual orientation.
3: It it would uh, be a law that you could use if you were discriminated against in employment, housing, issuance of credit, uh, uh, public accommodations, Uh, What
0: about the trans ban in the military? Would it do anything with that?
3: Sadly, it wouldn't. There are some exemptions uh, for military, small business, and uh, religious institutions. Um, But what it does is it amends the Civil Rights Act of 1967 Mm. and adds to uh, the protected categories of race, religion, and sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity.
0: And why that's so important is because like, if you were like, because you said that like what 21 states have, only 21 states have laws specifically.
3: And inclusive laws. So when I say 29 states don't.
0: 29 states don't, yes.
3: It doesn't mean they don't have any civil right law, but it might be that it covers... Um, you know, the gay and lesbian community, but not the transgender community. That's actually the case in Wisconsin, where, um, interestingly, we were the first state in the country to protect people on the basis of sexual orientation from discrimination in housing, education, uh, employment, and public accommodations. Um, but the state legislature has never re- Open that to add gender identity and expression into the underlying statute. So while we, you know, pride ourselves in being the first state in 1982 to pass a law like this, and by the way, it was signed into law by a Republican governor. Mm. So those many years ago, and yet we've never, uh, seen um, our legislature act again to expand it. Um, and so you'd say you have partial coverage. If you're transgender in Wisconsin, it's a big question mark whether you could get the protections if you were fired for that reason.
0: Which is... So we, this is such important legislation because it does protect so many people in so many places that like, because I would think of states, I'm pulling this out of a hat like I don't know. So maybe Jonathan don't say it, but I'm going to anyway. It's like I think of like a a state like in Alabama or something where maybe like a bigger city, like like a bigger city would have like a a Sydney or a city ordinance that protects Mm -hmm. like LGBTQ. But maybe like if you're in a county that's like outside of that city and you aren't protected. So this is something that you could use. You could find someone to help represent you, like pro bono, like an ACLU or whoever, to like help you get the get your rights restored, get your thing restored that was taken away, and yes. have a legal basis to do so.
3: Absolutely, and everyone would have those protections. Um, you know, I would add that, uh, yeah, it's a patchwork quilt. So you have the twenty-one states that have comprehensive laws, but in the other states, there's perhaps municipal law or. Maybe your company that you work for has a non-discrimination policy that they enforce, but your landlord might not.
0: Right. So has this, has, um, has the Equality Act passed the house?
3: No. In fact, it's just been introduced this week. Okay. So, um, in both houses, we're, we're very excited about getting this process rolling now that we have a new pro-equality House of Representatives. But
0: are we worried about it passing the Senate?
3: Well, so let's take it one step at a time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't borrow trouble. Don't borrow trouble. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, no. Yeah.
3: I'm just saying that- But it's like,
0: stay focused, stay focused. I get I, it. That's good.
3: I believe that when the House holds hearings and establishes a legislative record of why this is necessary, brings in witnesses to tell their stories, gets greater attention. People start calling their members of Congress saying, this is so important to, you know, my cousin or my grandkid or me, whoever. And, and so you start a movement that is already moving, but yes. you know, this is, and then we have a vote on the House floor and we have a moment where we pivot away from the Mueller investigation and we say, Oh my gosh, the House of Representatives for the first time ever passed the Equality Act. Okay, that's a milestone. It's not the end, but it's a milestone. And then you say, all right, in the best of all possible worlds, we'd be able to convince Mitch McConnell, the majority leader of the Republican-dominated Senate, to push this bill for a vote in the Senate. A lot of people um, hold great doubt that he'd ever be willing to do that. Because
0: he already said he would not. Because, he was Green <laughs> New Deal, but he yeah. said he would not do the uh, voting reform.
3: So, so you have this obstacle. And so what I think the milestone of first time a House in Congress passes something like this, it tells us how important the next set of elections are.
0: Oh my gosh, I loved her conversation. If you want to listen to it all, go back and take a listen. But just so you all know, the Equality Act was passed through the House in 2021, but because it was not passed in the Senate, um, it ended up just dying. So the Equality Act would have to be repassed by the House, which obviously in this House of Representatives, with Speaker Mike fucking Johnson, that's not going to happen. But we can remain hopeful for 2024. Um, But we hope that this episode gave you the good cheesecake Golden Girls vibes. And I just want to say, as we round out our year, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of our world. Thank you for supporting our work. We are just excited to grow in podcasting. We're excited to continue to find our voice and figure out how we want to continue using this platform. I love podcasting. I love all of you. I love our Curious community. So thank you so much, Curious people. We love you and have a gorgeous new year. Bye, y'all. And see you next year. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. And honey, there's more where that came from. You can follow us on Instagram at Curious with JVN. We are doing the most over there and it is so much fun. You can catch us here every Wednesday and also make sure to tune in every Monday for alternating episodes of Curious Now and Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough? Subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JBN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Chris McClure, Julia Melfi, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall.